Think about your couch, and how it's your throne, and you are the king or the queen of your studio apartment. W-A-L-T. It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Neumann U87, via the Avitas MA5, the Harrison 32 EQ, and the RNC 500. Analog tones on a Friday morning in the moon cabin. A warm welcome to you all. And thank you, as always, for being a part of this Fellowship of the Afflicted. We are sick, and we are suffering, and we don't think that that's going to change. But we are not afraid. Today on the show, a conversation with writer, comedian, podcaster, and mental health advocate Allison Raskin. Plus, amphibious things that sound like plucked strings. That's coming up on this week's installment of... Now on Thursdays. But first, another dispatch from my nocturnal scribbles in the glorious gloom, better known as... Night Pages. I used to have a sketch comedy group with my friend Ben. When we first started out, we wrote comedy sketches about things like a magic ukulele that keeps popping up in places it shouldn't, the dairy aisle at the grocery store, the on-deck circle at a baseball game, a trench in World War I. There was another sketch about a haunted valley full of demons, but the demons mostly just want to steal your credit card number, and you can scare them away by blowing a trumpet. And then there was the one about a fallen monarch who once presided over the land of Tablonia, All of his subjects were tables, and he shows up in an olive garden believing he can rebuild his empire using their tables. We had a blast writing those sketches, but I would not call them viral hits. And every time we finished performing one, we would wonder why it didn't land. And then one day, in the middle of a writing session, also known as playing Mortal Kombat at Ben's house, Ben paused the game turned to me and said, you know, sometimes I feel like my whole life went wrong when I was 15. I wish I could travel back in time and punch that teenage version of myself in the face. We looked at each other for a second, and then we turned off the PlayStation, we picked up my laptop, and in an hour, we had written a sketch where Ben does exactly that. He travels back in time to punch his 15-year-old self, played by me, in the face. Now, at the time, Ben was 6'5 and rail thin, and I was five inches shorter and weighed almost twice as much as him, so the visual gag was great. But what really surprised us was the feeling that gobsmacked Ben as we started writing, the realization that his teenage self wasn't the problem. It was the 28-year-old who was letting the 15-year-old down. We didn't laugh so much when we wrote the sketch, but once we wrote it, 
we couldn't stop writing more like it. We did another one where it's me sitting at my desk at my software customer service job, hoping for a call from the public theater about an audition. But every time the phone rings, it's a different customer, played by Ben, wanting to know how to use the software to download porn. And we did one where Ben's nervous about meeting his girlfriend's dad, so I, as a trained actor, assume the role of the dad and attempt to role-play the meeting with him, which of course goes terribly. And when we did these sketches live, the crowd did laugh. Hard. And it wasn't the scattered chuckles we got with the magic ukulele. These laughs were different. Deeper. More sustained. Colored with claps and sighs. Eventually, we started writing songs. Ben had just gotten a new Ikea couch. His first one for his first apartment. And we got it set up and we sat down on it, and we thought, this is just one of the best feelings you get to have in life. This feeling. Forget the table king. I'm the king of this apartment. It ain't much of a kingdom, but it's mine. Around 2015, I came across a YouTube channel called Just Between Us. The channel featured a blend of talk show segments and comedy sketches by two former BuzzFeed video stars, Gabe Dunn and Allison Raskin. By this point, Ben and I weren't doing comedy together anymore. And there was something about Just Between Us that felt so familiar. Two best friends doing bits about their dating lives and loving each other in spite of how different they were as people— I couldn't stop watching. At the time, JBU was a big deal in the world of online comedy. Their channel had hundreds of thousands of subscribers. Gabe and Allison were in development on a TV show. The TV show never materialized, and the world of YouTube comedy started to change. But Gabe and Allison kept going. They wrote a best-selling YA novel. Allison made a hit fiction podcast with a big network. And online, she started to speak openly about her lifelong struggle with OCD and its impact on her relationships. She eventually published her own book called Overthinking About You, which blends her personal journey with original research and reporting. And through it all, Allison's voice has stayed consistent and clear. She is eloquent, soulful, self-deprecating, funny, and honest. I caught up with her back in February, and she was, as she always seems to be, in the midst of several projects and trying to find her place in the midst of it all. I have a very nine-to-five approach to my creativity in a way. This is fascinating. This is fascinating. (laughs) No one has said that so far. Um, So tell me what that looks like. Do you have a daily kind of schedule you give yourself? What does that look like? I only work during business hours. So um, 
when I'm able to, I, I just like, even though I work freelance and I work in a bunch of different creative projects and I work for myself, I still like maintain myself like a little business where I'm like, okay, now it's my work hours and now it's five or six. And so I shall stop and then I will start again in the morning <laughs> instead of like, you know, um, oh my gosh, this idea just took me by storm and I'm typing away at 9 p.m. Like I've never had that kind of relationship to my writing. My mind is melting at this information <laughs> because, and I'll tell you why, um, because I think for me, a lot of wanting to have these conversations with other artists is premised on a personal feeling that if I get an impulse or a desire or an idea about some project and I don't engage with it right when that happens, it will disappear into the ether. Uh, like the muse will be like, fine, I guess that's how it is. And just <laughs> flutter away and never return. Um, I guess my question to you is, let's say you're in the shower outside of business hours and you do get some idea that feels very strongly connected to something that you're working on. What do you do? Do you tell yourself like, okay, idea, I'll see you at nine o'clock tomorrow morning or <laughs> when, <laughs> how does that work? I'd say the only type of thing where I become impulsive and I feel like I have to do it right away is is TikTok videos. Okay. And that I'm actually realizing, because I have OCD, I'm realizing I was kind of getting into potentially like a OCD loop with it where I felt like I had to put one out every day. And if I didn't, I was a failure. And so I was bad. And, and so like that, I had like a compulsivity around like, let me think of this idea and then I needed to film it right away. But it felt it felt compulsive. It didn't feel like mm. a healthy creative process <laughs> where I was like to my partner, hey, I have an idea. Can you film it right now? And he was like, no, Allison, I have a meeting. It would be like, well, how dare you? I thought of it right now, you know? Um, <laughs> look, I don't ever feel like, oh, man, I'm really loving this. <laughs> That's terrible, <laughs> but like. Really? I mean, it is very, very rare for mm. me to feel like, oh man, I'm in flow. Like I know that a lot of people talk about being kind mm. of like in flow, like in this like creative moment where like they're just so hyper-focused on what they're working on and the words are just pouring out of them. Like I write on word count. So <laughs> I will set a goal for myself when yeah. I'm writing a book that uh -huh. I have to hit a thousand words every day. Uh-huh. And so some days I just can't get there. Like I'll get to 8.50 and I have a meeting or I have a social event or I have to go. Uh -huh. And then there are other days where I will be at 1,000 already and it's taking less time than normal. So I'll get to like 1,300 and then I'll, I'll feel good. Um, and then there are other days where it is such a – a struggle that the moment I hit a thousand, I go, see you later, and I, you know, kind of get up and go. So I've kind of a very like boring, methodical approach to a lot of my writing. Um, but also it's why I was able to write a whole book in a, four months. So yes. there's good and bad sides to it. Well, that's what I was just thinking when you said that, Allison, is, uh, it, you know, it, however it sounds, you are also a person who has written slash co-written, what, four books at this mm -hmm. point? Yeah. And, but the other question I have in hearing you say that is, what brings you back to the desk every morning at nine? If it's not the allure of the flow state, is it the sense of accomplishment you feel when you finish the project? Is it the satisfaction of checking things off a to-do list? What, what, do you think that, what do you think it is that brings you back? My favorite quote of all time is like, 
actors love acting, painters love to paint, and writers love having written. So, <laughs> like, I, I definitely enjoy yeah. being done. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, last year, I, I wrote um, the first draft of my next book, which is a, a nonfiction deep dive into modern marriage and sort of, like, mm. how do we you know, set ourselves up for success for this institution that historically has like a very high fail rate. So how mm -hmm. do we, you know, go into this thing, both being realistic about it and also like having the grace to say like, maybe this might not work out, but I'm going to give it my best shot sort of mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. I hated writing that book. <laughs> I mean, it was a goddamn nightmare for me. <laughs> like every day I was so angry. I didn't understand why I had had sold it i like was like uh -huh. who wants this book like it's such you know like it was a nightmare and then when i was done with it i went oh i really this is i like this <laughs> you know and so like the creative process is so all over the place and then yeah. you know there were elements of the nonfiction i did love writing like i i interviewed so many different um couples and individuals about their own life stories and i found that i really love telling other people's stories in prose like that that mm. was really fun and interesting for me of how to capture you know the most interesting parts of it my reactions to it that's like by far my favorite part of the book but then there's another element of the book which is like interweaving experts advice about yeah. these big topics and i hated that like i right. I was like, I'm not smart enough to do this. I had to like have like multiple transcripts in my hands, like mm -hmm, trying to figure mm -hmm. out like what order do I talk about the different ways to manage your finances? Like it was totally. Like, um, and so like the honestly, like the the experience is kind of different every time. And then like what appeals to me can change. And mm -hmm. one day it feels great, the next day I hate it. it it's yeah. it's a wild ride. Yeah. <laughs> Well, the, the example that you've just cited is so interesting, I think, because it, you're putting your finger on one of the things that I often think is one of the biggest tensions in nonfiction writing is you want it to feel engaging and propulsive and um, like it has a narrative engine to it. Um, and one of my favorite things in overthinking about you, uh, which I have a bunch of questions for you about, is, um, you know, you, you at one point you're talking about a conversation you have with your friend who you call Liza. Um, and you're, yes, you're kind of addressing her in the book as a person with a certain lived experience that speaks to the subject that you're writing about, but you also put us in scene with you and Liza, that you're sitting across the table from her, that she tells you her body is starting to vibrate, uh, she's worried she's going to have a panic attack, and it makes the entire, it makes the whole thing feel so much more immediate and embodied, literally. Um, and that is creating a scene like that is more, I would imagine, of a sort of fiction storyteller's mindset, as opposed to this whole idea of juggling transcripts and making sure you're not misquoting people. That feels more like journalism or like writing a research paper. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, and I did really, in this last book, um, try to insert my feelings about what I was learning even more, if that mm -hmm. makes sense, because mm -hmm. I think I also as a reader, really like that. And, and you know, there were times where I was like, oh, does it matter, like, my reaction to this person? But then I was like, that's kind of interesting because in a lot of ways, I'm, as the interviewer, the eyes of the audience. And so maybe I am picking up on, like, how someone else would be reacting 
to listening to this wild story or heartbreaking mm -hmm. story. Um, and also it was interesting to kind of call out my own biases, you know, yeah. that like I would hear people say things and, and like to sort of like confess that like my reaction is like, oh, why would you do that? And then like <laughs> understand like why I thought that, how they changed my mind, like my sort of journey through the interview. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did incorporate, and I, I have to be honest, I have not gotten any editor's notes on this first manuscript, so <laughs> that could very well be cut by the time it comes out. But <laughs> to me, yeah, it felt like a way to make me more engaged with, with the nonfiction of it all was to sort of add the narrative arc of me as the interviewer doing these interviews and what that, mm -hmm. what that experience was like as well. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we're talking about this because the line between your life and the podcast that you make, books you write, stories you tell, sketches you do, has always been something that, to my experience as an admirer of your work, is a line that you're interested in playing with. Um, and you bring a lot of yourself to your work, both fictional and non-fictional. And something that came up for me when I was reading over Thinking About You is there is a really remarkable anecdote that you share that as early as the age of, I think it was four, you had the fluency to go to your parents and to say, um, something is wrong inside. I'm feeling sad all the time. Um, I, I need some help. That struck me as an extraordinary amount of self-awareness to have <laughs> at, <laughs> at four years old. Um, and I wonder if you feel like that capacity for self-awareness is like a superpower that you have to a degree because your ability to self-assess and be so vulnerable and probing of your own uh, particularities is so recurrent in your work. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the, the side effects of having been mentally ill since I was four is... <laughs> A lot of introspection, right? Yeah. A lot of thinking yeah. about who I am, how my brain works, how I want my brain to work, how I want to exist, how I want to get better, what I want to change about myself. And in some ways, I think it's almost too much. Like I, you know, I, I feel like an ex one said something like, you're too preoccupied with being happy or if you're happy or not. You know, like I think a lot of times it can kind of take me out of, of the of what it means to kind of live and be alive and in the moment because I'm always like assessing it and, and saying, oh, can I use this for something? Or is this mm -hmm, a good joke? Mm -hmm. Or is this a good storyline? Or, you know, like mining my own life for material, which is a, a rabbit hole I've been stuck in for quite some time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for the creative aspect of it, I, I do think that it helps. Um, I think in some ways, the types of projects I work on, I think I, 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 feel very comfortable and confident in things that are about my life or my experiences or, or adjacent to in the fictional realm. But, mm -hmm. you know, like I'm a huge fan of sci-fi, but I've never felt like I could write sci-fi. I never felt like I had those skill sets. Um, right now I'm, I'm working on a, or I'm attempting to, to pitch a, a half hour show that really isn't that that related to me. And that mm -hmm. feels like mm -hmm. very exciting. Yeah. Um, it feels like, Oh, I finally found a, plot that like i i don't have any of these things happening to me you know <laughs> um so i think in some ways it, it has restrained what i feel like is my 
uh, is like my natural talent because I think my I think I naturally gravitate towards really doing things kind of you know autobiographically or like you know fiction with a wink um (laughs) but i think a goal for myself creatively is to sort of expand beyond that Mm -hmm. but i also think it it has helped me tap into the human emotion of it all because i feel feelings very deeply and and then can talk about that (laughs) yeah yeah and and bring humor to them which i think is a source of great relief for a lot of people who are not in a position to find humor in um, in those moments where they're they're struggling with those those big feelings. Um, so it's I mean it's also an act of service of a kind I think that comes from you going on your own journey of navigating those things. I'm curious in that vein, just like writers love having written. Um, as you began in your life to start making art or expressive things out of real experiences that you have had, which may have been difficult to live through uh, when they were first happening, was the pull towards making art out of those things a sense that it might make you feel better about whatever you were writing about? And, And did it have that effect? Or was it... Um, I have to do something with this experience. Perhaps this is this is a place to put the feelings. I think it was kind of a, a journey to realize that, you know, comedy is just tragedy plus time, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Um, but yes, I, I think that I've now learned that that creating around around sadness is is something that obviously works well and there's um you know, there was always that fear, right, of like, if I get happy, I'll no longer be funny. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I used to do mm-hmm. a lot of stand up. And I think there was like this sense of like, but if I get my life together, like, what will my jokes be? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of creatives kind of struggle with that, where it's like, well, you know, if I if I'm not, I'm the funniest when my life's falling apart. And so if I get yeah. my life together, you know, who am I even going to be funny anymore? This comes up all the time on this show. Yeah. <laughs> And I think at a certain point, what I realized was I know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to be heartbroken. I know what Mm -hmm. it's like to be disappointed. I know what it's like to hate myself. I know all of those things. I can still creatively pull from those feelings, but I don't need to feel them anymore. I don't need to live in that. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when things happen now, I, I definitely do still pull from it and talk about it. You know, when I went through my broken engagement, writing about it definitely was a way to help me process it. It was also a way to not be ashamed of it because I was openly talking about it and then had like the great. Um, result of like so many people sharing back their own experiences their similar experiences and, and realizing, oh, I'm not alone in this. I mean, I think when we create around tough things and then the feedback is not, oh my God, what's wrong with you? But the feedback is like, I had that exact same thought or I had that exact mm-hmm. same experience. Like mm-hmm. it, it's so rewarding, but it's also, I like to share from right after crisis, right? I don't know if yeah. there is that much to be gained from sharing within crisis. And, mm-hmm. and I see a lot of people, you know, on TikTok that will be sharing the moment 
that is itself terrible. You know, like yeah. they'll be sharing the moment that their friend is is being mean to them or they'll be sharing the moment of their actual breakup. And I, I think for me, like I like to have a little bit of time to process it on my own, to heal from it a little bit and then put it out there in a in a either nonfiction or creative piece mm-hmm. of, of work. I agree. And I also think that when you open a vein in onto the page or into the microphone or whatever it is. Like if you're just sharing in the midst of being in crisis, you're also putting the people who watch or read or interact with your thing in a position where they worry if they have to take care of you a little bit mm. mm-hmm. rather than um, get getting something from your experience. And it, it's interesting to hear you say this because I, I heard you say in an interview about the uh, broken engagement experience that you went through, um, that by the time that happened, you were devastated. You, you were grieving the loss of what you thought you were going to have, the, uh, the loss of a dream that had been important to you for a really long time, but that you also had a self-awareness at that point to know that this was a, a season in your life that you were going to move through and that you started even saying to friends, like, how many months do you think I'm going to be bummed out about this? Like, what, what do you think? <laughs> Three months, six months, nine months? Um, and I wondered hearing you say that if I know, you know, a lot of things played into your ability to navigate that storm, um, I, therapy and medication and, and good friendships and good support systems and everything. But I wondered if also your experience creating art, integrating these experiences into your life as a creative person helped you know in that moment that you would, you would be able to get through to the other side. I mean, I definitely think about my life in terms of chapters, which, mm. you know, might relate to the, the writer in me where I'll very mm-hmm. much be like, okay, this this was this is the end of a chapter, but I will get to start another chapter instead mm-hmm. of looking at it as like, this is the end of my life, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which I think when I was younger, when horrible things would happen, it felt much more like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I also think very, in terms of my life, like... Um, I used to be attached to like one specific storyline, right? Where it was like, I need these things to happen or else I won't be happy. And then instead realizing that like I can, that I'm very adaptable, that we're all very adaptable and that there's multiple versions of my life where I can be happy and and content and satisfied. And even if those details sort of change. um, So maybe in a way that is sort of like a, a writerly way to think about my own life experience. Yes. You're making me think of one of my favorite jokes I've ever heard a comedian tell. Um, it was a guy named uh, Jean-Marco Ceresi, Um that I think speaks to exactly what you're describing is he talks about going skydiving and something goes wrong initially when he jumps out of the plane and he has this thought to himself, Jean-Marco, you can't die. You're the main character. Um <laughs> And I think, you know, it's it's a joke, but it also, I think, speaks to this phenomenon that you're talking about, that if you have this innate sense of your life as a story that's unfolding in chapters, th- that can be a source of comfort when you are in a moment that might otherwise be completely derailing or despairing. Mm-hmm. Of like, yeah, this is the dark night of the soul, but there's still an act three coming. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Plenty more to come with Allison Raskin on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. ¶¶ 
I kind of set out to make my own content instead of like working in TV on other people's shows and getting my foot in the door that way. Mm-hmm. And look, like there's a version of my life where if if a certain somebody hadn't been accused of of assault, right. I would have had a t- my own TV show when I was 26 years old. Mm-hmm. Um like we were very close to getting picked up on MTV when our third lead was, you know, um, accused of of rape and they pulled yeah. the plug instead of recasting him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've never been that close to having my own show since. But like it's it's a lot of like things that are out of your control. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I wrote a an article like in 2018 about that experience and about feeling like you know, blaming female creators for people's horrible behavior and, you know, and like why my show had to get canceled because of this person who mm-hmm. wasn't even that vital to it is a whole can be the yeah the talk of a whole nother episode, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and this whole the whole industry is is like is horror stories like that, where it's yeah. like my show is about to start and then the financing backed out and then the show didn't exist anymore or, and then you never get that opportunity ever again. And um, I feel in a lot of ways, especially in the TV space that I had so much success there at the beginning of my career. And now I am like, just like hanging on for dear life. Like, Mm -hmm. please Mm -hmm. someone give me another shot. Um, And it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing to feel like your career is, is on the decline when you're only in your early to mid (laughs) thirties. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I I mean, I am so sorry that you went through that. Something I hear as a takeaway from it also is, I you know, I do feel like I have conversations in my life with writers, artists of other kinds, but writers in particular, where that experience of having that project implode because of someone else's poor behavior that becomes the new narrative of their life. And they kind of they kind of drop out of ongoing creative pursuit because it that story becomes a way for them to say, well, this could have been my life. I could have had a career as a writer, but this thing happened and then it was just never going to be. And that the harder and braver thing to do is to return to the page, the metaphorical next day and say like, okay, what else do I have? And, you know, here you are almost 10 years later with books published and podcasts out in the world. And so I have, I have such admiration for that because it's not just that it's easy to do it the other way. It's that it's also understandable to do it the other way. It's, it's understandable to have an implosion of your dreams like that and reach the conclusion that uh, this is not a wise path. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it is. It is like a. It is an ongoing struggle, though, to see to to feel your influence decline. Right mm-hmm, to like mm-hmm. know that like there was a time where where um, my comedy partner Gabe Dunn and I were a hot commodity. Like our, our YouTube channel was, was rapidly growing. You know, we were able to sell our first novel off of like a one page sheet, (laughs) which is like unheard of. Like, you know, like we were, we were hot. Um, and Mm -hmm. I look back in a lot of ways now that I'm, you know, I don't know what's next for me. I unable to even get a staffing meeting. I'm unable to, you know, feel financially secure 
my socials are all down, you know, like there is this sense of like, oh, well, did I lose it, right? Did I lose mm -hmm. the thing that made people be drawn to me? Is that why every day my Instagram numbers are are rapidly <laughs> declining? Like, mm. did I lose my spark? Um, and I think it's the only thing that kind of like keeps you going is a sense of like, none, none of this is really fair, right? It's not like this yeah. is a direct meritocracy. And because my career in some ways is less successful than it used to be, means my talent or my insights or my writing abilities have declined. It's more, so much of this is luck. So much of this is timing. Um, some of it is is the appeal of of what is hot in the moment. You know, we worked at BuzzFeed when BuzzFeed was the biggest deal on the internet. Um, and and it can often feel like, oh my God, how do I recapture what I had? And mm -hmm. having to come to terms with like, I can't, so how can I create something new for myself that will also be satisfying and hopefully lucrative and allow me to continue to be a, a storyteller as mm -hmm. my primary career? Yeah. Do you feel... Like, I mean, I have a sense from watching your work and listening to your work and reading your work that you have been on a creative journey that has taken you deeper and deeper into the probing of the kinds of feelings uh, and experiences that that characterize your work. These questions about relationship viability, these questions about what it takes to be happy, navigating OCD, um, that you have constantly, with, with each project, it, it, it seems, returned to the task of finding new depth in those areas. Um, and I hear you also saying that there is this attendant drop in social media presence or uh, sense of not having as much industry heat, quote unquote. Am I characterizing your creative journey accurately to your experience? And do you think there's a correlation between those two things and maybe a sense that, you know, if you just continue to serve the people who are really responding to your work, that will be a path through this time of turbulence? I hope so. Um <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Yeah, I Me mean, too. I, I think something that I had to do was I had to shift the way I thought about my work. I think I fall into this thing of like, well, it's on the decline. So it will just keep declining until I'm I am nothing and I have zero followers. <laughs> um, and allowing myself to say, like, I don't know what's coming. Like, I think when Overthinking About You came out, I had a lot of hope that it would make a big splash and that it would change my career and that there would very much be a before overthinking and after overthinking. Uh -huh. And I got to tell you, not the case. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it maybe made a in the water or like, you know, like, but, you know, it didn't get very much press attention. It didn't hit any lists. It didn't, you know, it didn't directly change my day to day life in any way. But I'm getting feedback from people that this book has changed their lives in a way yeah. that it is like changed the way they show up in relationships. It's changed the way that they think about relationships. And I think moving into this work that is more mental health based, that is more anchored in just like the human experience and seeing people 
trying to remember that like, oh, if this thing helps five people, then it has value. Yeah. And I think it's been really tricky for me to get out of a quantity over quality mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And and that is like my eternal journey. And also not giving up on my projects, right? Like I think yeah. that it would be very easy for me. And, and I in many ways, I want to be like, well, that failed. And just kind of like yeah. walk away from it. When like, you know, there are books that like, Five years after they come out, something happens and they become a bestseller and they've yeah. tapped a nerve and the right person has talked about them. Or, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think for me, like it is this ongoing thing of not giving up on myself and not feeling like all the best parts are behind me and that I don't yet know like where my career will take me. And also allowing myself to have more options for my career. Like I'm I'm getting a master's in psychology right now, and I don't know if that will open any doors for me, but I I hope that it will. Um, and yeah, it's it's that ever it's that it's that thing of I don't want to I don't want to give up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you're referencing something that you write about in Overthinking About You, and for what it's worth, it did make a huge impact on me. So I'm one of those people, and thank you for oh, writing it. You. Truly, <laughs> um, in the book, you talk about the challenge of reframing a perception of a relationship away from this has to be the greatest love story that was ever told and check every single box to am I getting 80% of what I hoped out of this relationship? That is extraordinary and something to be celebrated. Um, But there were so many ways that you were talking about romantic relationships that I felt, and, and how, to, how to resolve tension there, that I felt could be very neatly mapped onto at least my own relationship with creativity and artistry. Um, and I wondered if you feel the same way. Oh, I mean, I've never thought about it that way, but I think it is so true, right? Because in a lot of ways in this industry, we're taught to have an expectation of what success looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think being able to be more flexible with what success feels like for us and that it doesn't mean to, you know, the idea that we really compare with other people and other people's careers, I think mm-hmm. is very similar to how we compare with other people's relationships and feeling like a rejection in the career can mean a reflection of our self-worth, which I really don't agree with. And yeah, so it's in, I, you've touched on something I didn't even put together myself, but I think there's a lot of truth there. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Did you find yourself, as you wrote about these experiences of negative thought cycles around relationships, having any revelations about how far you have come or whether or not these things uh, feel more more manageable now, or did you have a sense like, oh, I'm still, th- this is still something that I am unresolved about, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. I think I have definitely recognized that like my, all for all the work that I've done on how I view relationships and my relationship with myself in that arena, I have so much more work to do in how I view my career. Mm-hmm. And I find myself constantly trying to fight back against these negative thought patterns where it will Mm -hmm. be like, where I'll think like, well, if my video doesn't do well, then I'm a failure. Yeah. Like if I'm not, if I don't reach a certain level of success and fame and, you know, fortune, then my life, I haven't lived my life correctly. Yeah. But then I'll sit with myself and I'll go, do you think that about your mom? (laughs) 
Like, yeah. Or like, do you think that about your friend who's like, you know, wants to be an actress, but maybe hasn't had as much luck or, you know, or this other person who's just like living, a you know, in a more steady, normal life. Like, do you think that they're all failures? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, <laughs> I think that they're full, wonderful people of value. Right. And it's like, why can't I extend that same, you know, type of thought to myself? Like, when did I decide that if I don't reach this echelon, if I don't have this level of, of followers or success or awards or whatever that like who told me that and why am I why do I keep believing it yeah (laughs) and I'm still in the phase of acknowledging that and grappling with it but I have not yet moved past it in the way that I had about the thoughts about being unlovable or that I needed a partner to complete me or that Mm -hmm. rejection reflect romantic rejection reflected my own self-worth like i've left those things behind but mm-hmm. i'm still very much in the in the struggle of, of the career of it all yeah um and so it's actually really helpful and interesting to see that like i can use some of those same tools <laughs> hopefully to to move past this as well yeah well i mean you're making me realize that i think my answer to that question is why can't i extend that same grace to myself that you're talking about extending to your friend or to your mom is that I have a narrative in my head that it's like, well, but this is all I have to offer. And mm. my friend has a house <laughs> and a right. baby. Or, and my mom has uh, this whole career and all these uh, accolades that she's gotten. But I don't, I, I don't have those things. And the only vector of access for me to them is to somehow find success with this. Um, and not to, to quote you back to yourself, but you even say with regard to relationships. And it sounds like maybe this would be resonant in terms of career. You say like, every time I put myself back out there, it felt dangerous, reckless. Could I mentally survive another heartbreak? That's just, that's another, that was another moment for me where I thought whenever you come to the end of some project that hasn't gone the way you wanted, those are the thoughts that, that come up. Right. I mean, is that, is that fair to say? I've had so much failure in my mm-hmm. career that I think with the big projects, I can kind of take it on the chin, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it is the the social media of it all where I think because the response is so immediate yeah. that I feel like heartbroken again mm-hmm. and again and again, where it's like, oh, nobody liked that video. Nobody cares about this thing. You know, I can see the metrics immediately where when I went and pitched the reality show based off of overthinking about you, it took like months to hear no's from all the networks, you know, and sort of like in that time, you're kind of like prepping yourself for it. You're preparing for the rejection. You can like reframe it a bit. Whereas like with the the more immediate stuff that I'm putting out, you know, a new Substack, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I started putting fiction on my Substack and like that day was like so important. I was checking the metrics all day and like I couldn't like this is this is like a big, you know, yeah. um, so these smaller things I find myself like heartbroken over constantly. In my head, it's a rejection from my fans. It's a rejection from people that like already know me or from like an algorithm that like all these other people are having success on constantly. Mm-hmm. Whereas like when I can't sell a TV show, it's like, well, no one can sell a TV show. Right, right, If that right, right. makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and I mean, it strikes me hearing you say that, that so much of your career 
you have had great success in these uh, like, subscribe, comment, social media reaction driven platforms. So you, you, know the, you know the highs of that as well as, as the lows. And so I would imagine there is a sense of a difference of relationship to that versus you go into a pitch meeting with a bunch of executives and you tell them your reality show idea or you hand them your script and then I, I don't know what they do. I imagine they go into a smoke-filled room <laughs> on an island somewhere and, you know, take psychedelics and make arbitrary decisions. And that's how people get TV shows. Like it, it's very mysterious. Um, that's so it. It's like, I can come up with a bunch of reasons that are not my fault mm-hmm. for why the show didn't go. Whereas when my content does not do well, who's there to blame other than me? Right. If that makes sense. But I also sometimes feel like I will have like right around May of last year, I had the book coming out and I had pitched this reality, this, which I still think should get made. It's a great show. It's like, it's like <laughs> a mix of like Indian matchmaker and love on the spectrum about like me sort of like helping people with anxiety, OCD and depression, like find love and like whatever. Yes. Yes. The would sizzle watch. reel is great. It should have gotten made. But anyway, <laughs> like. Would watch. You know, I, I was sitting on the, 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 you know, the cusp of, of like the book release and pitching this big project. And both things were such disappointments in a lot of ways. And so when it first happened, I was like, well, I, that's life. But then like, I felt like a couple months after was when I like started to feel depressed. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't as immediate of a heartbreak, but it's still, and I had to be like, why am I feeling so sad? And it's like, oh, well, because two of your dreams just got shot. (laughs) Right, right. I have to grieve that. I have to acknowledge that like, even though I've gotten really good at dealing with rejection in this industry, there's still going to be some level of impact and that's okay. (laughs) This makes me think of another thing from your book, which which it's it's very meta to bring up a quote from your book in this particular context. (laughs) But you say, when when we lose a relationship that's barely gotten going, we have to grieve the loss of the fantasy. Um, and that, it, it, but I think it's particularly hard in art because it's all fantasy, right? Mm. Th- there's not even another real person involved. It's it's just <laughs> ideas and worlds and concepts that you created in in were birthed from your heart and that you somehow made real, and you have to just watch you have to watch them not resonate in in the way that you hoped. And it's, it's very hard to do that. I've, you know, been trying to grapple with like, why do I want these things so badly? Like, is this just an ego thing? Like, but when I think about when I go into that fantasy place and I think about like, oh, what if I got my dream, you know, if my show goes, like, what does that mean for me? Mm -hmm. I actually like don't fantasize about like, going to an award show or like being interviewed like I fantasize about getting to go to set every day and getting to see and getting to be in a writer's room and getting to like actually do the work and I think that like that has been revealing to me that like yes there is so much bullshit and ego surrounded and like wanting to succeed in this space but like returning to the core of like what I really want is I want to go in every day and be surrounded by other creative people and get to cast people and make creative decisions and yeah. direct actors and work with actors and and make a really cool story. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that that is what is still the most appealing to me is why I should keep doing it. 
You know, you're making me think of, and I don't know if you remember saying this, but um, when I was working on Bad With Money with Gabe, you were interviewed, I think, on the very first episode. Mm -hmm. And uh, you guys were talking about the experience of being at BuzzFeed. And you said that one of your favorite things about being there was having a job to get up every day and go to. Um, and that it was, it, it was, it gave a container to the creativity and a known place that you could experience it. Um, and I remember really connecting with that. Totally. I mean, I've been just, I mostly just like work alone in my room all day. Like I, I want mm -hmm. to be surrounded by other people working on a project. Um, you know, and like the last time I really got to do that long term was was working on Gossip, which was my scripted podcast. And that was like by far one of the most rewarding aspects of my career. What was the collaboration on that that, that felt so appealing? So Gossip was a 12-part um, scripted comedic soap opera. And I sold the idea and I got to be the to stitcher and I got to be the showrunner. Um director and one of the lead actors in it. And mm -hmm. um, so we had a period of time where I got to have a mini writer's room where I got to hire two other writers and I got to break story with them. We moved all the episodes to outline together. I then wrote all of the episodes off those outlines. And then one of the writers came and helped me make the edits. Then we went into production for nine days, you know, we kind of like recorded it like a little movie. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I got to direct all these amazing actors. Then we got to go into the edit where I had an editor. I had my producer who'd been involved the whole time. You know, it was really like kind of making a little TV show, but it was just audio, um, mm -hmm. you know, with a smaller crew. But there was still a crew every step of the way. It wasn't just like me. Like, you know, even when JBU, um, just between us, was it was the YouTube channel when we were doing sketches, like that was still like I was in charge of everything <laughs> in a lot of ways where like this was like, oh, I have a company above me that is invested in me. Yes. And like the feeling of that, of like, I this is my project, but other people have buy-in feels mm -hmm. so great. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. It's It's like a sense that, I mean, to go back to this idea of the world of fantasy that we that our projects live in there is something weirdly comforting about a company saying yes uh, this is worth our bottom line to mm -hmm. <laughs> to give you the tools that you need to build out this flight of fancy into a thing that people can engage with whether they're listening to it or reading it or watching it or or whatever it is this whole journey you need validation along the way right i mean like if you just keep making stuff and making stuff and nobody ever says to you hey i like this mm -hmm. it's really hard to keep going and so i think it's been so important to me for every time i get a level of validation it's like really stopping and pausing and appreciating that you know that like this production company is attached to my tv show does that mean that it's going to be a tv show no does it mean we're even going to sell it to a network no doesn't mean i'll ever get a cent of money no but it's a company saying out of all of the scripts that i read mm -hmm. i'm going to pick your script to put some time into free time like free time we're not paying you <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but that's yeah. still i'm still picking this this project and being able to say like it's not the end goal but it's still a big step and like if you don't stop and like smell the roses of those steps. It's like, you're going to just feel terrible all the time. 
Yeah, and I hear you describing that with gossip that you remember every single step of it. It sounds like you remember the writing, you remember the being in the room with the other writers, you remember hiring, hiring them, you remember being with the actors, you remember sitting in the edits. Like, uh, I mean, it sounds like you really did savor every step of that. I did. And, and then they never gave us our season two. So it's, <laughs> it's justice for gossip. We, we all want it. <laughs> I, I will say, I, I will go on the record. I was, I was a gossip fan. Uh, I would still listen to season two. Um, <laughs> I forget the name of the the uh, DJ at Golden Radio. Um, oh, Rock and Robin. Rock and Robin. I would also listen to a spinoff series about Rock and Robin's life. <laughs> for what it's worth. I would too. <laughs> <laughs> Allison, thank you so much for sharing all of this, um, and particularly for for being so honest and and clear about what it's like to feel really good about what you're doing and what it's like to to navigate self doubt and. Um, I know that I'm one of the many people who is still watching and following everything you do and gets a tremendous amount out of it. And I've really gotten so much out of talking to you. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I loved this. Thank you so much. Wild card. Wednesday. <laughs> Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. It's so Wild Card Wednesday. It's so Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. It's so Wild Card Wednesday. I am not much for classical music, but one of my favorite sounds in the world is right before an orchestra begins, and you can hear the strings being tuned. I've always found that so interesting. Right before this rigorously rehearsed and carefully scored performance, they let you hear the messy, imperfect part. I think I like that because it reminds me of the feeling of walking along a country road in late May as the weather is starting to change. The sky is purple with dusk, and the world is humming with anticipation of summer. And the frogs come out. Disease is hosted, produced, written, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Allison Raskin for joining me on the show today. Check out the links in the show notes to find Allison's work. Her book, Overthinking About You, her Substack, Emotional Support Lady, and the podcast version of Just Between Us, which she is still making with Gabe Dunn, who you will also hear from on a future episode of The Midnight Disease. 
Our opening homily is adapted in part from the lyrics of Jocelyn McKenzie. Our Wildcard Wednesday theme song features the musical talents of Dave Van Ronk and Evan Viola and the voice talents of The Family. Our show art is by M.K. Cummins. If you have thoughts about anything you've heard on The Midnight Disease, send me a note. The email address is midnight at walt.fm. And if you haven't already, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. But most of all, thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. We'll be back next week. And until then, keep driving, Midnight Cruisers. Tell me where You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.